Hey, I'm Tanisha. We're going to start in Song of Solomon, chapter 8, verses 5 to 14. Who is this coming up from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? Under the apple tree I roused you, there your mother conceived you, there she who was in labour gave you birth. Place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm, for love is as strong as death, its jealousy unyielding as the grave, it burns like blazing fire, like a mighty flame. Many waters cannot quench love, rivers cannot sweep it away. If one were to give all the wealth of one's house for love, it would be utterly scorned. We have a little sister, and her breasts are not yet grown. What shall we do for our sister on the day she is spoken for? If she is a wall, we will build towers of silver on her. If she is a door, we will enclose her with panels of cedar. I am a wall, and my breasts are like towers. Thus I have become in his eyes like one bringing contentment. Solomon had a vineyard in Balhamon. He led out his vineyard to tenants. Each was to bring for its fruit a thousand shekels of silver. But my own vineyard is mine to give. The thousand shekels are for you, Solomon, and two hundred are for those who tend its fruit. You who dwell in the gardens with friends and attendants, let me hear your voice. Come away, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or like a young stag on the spice-laden mountains. And we'll flick to Revelation chapter 22, verse 17. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come, and let the one who hears say, Come. Let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. So let's get into Song of Song chapter 8 as we finish off this intriguing book. As I said, there'll be Q&A afterwards if you have any questions you would like to um, put out there or comments as well. And by the time we get to chapter 8, it, it's, it's, like, it's like the moment at the end of the wedding ceremony where the celebrant says, I present to you Mr. and Mrs. When we walked down the aisle, me and Natasha, we had Song 2 by Blur being played, you know, the whole woohoo part because it was a great celebration. And we get that in Song of Songs chapter 8 verse 5 when we hear, and I'll get back to that in a moment, when we hear the friends who we've heard so often in this song say, who is this coming up from the wilderness leaning on her beloved? Here she's, she's coming. Both of them are walking together arm in arm. And kids, as we walk through this chapter today, there's four purple bubbles on the screen. And when you see the purple bubbles, I want you to write down the words in them because together they make a verse from the Bible. So see if you can get that. Grown-ups, you can play along too. So look for the four purple bubbles to see what the verse is. And if you're really clever, I reckon you'll get it halfway through by bubble two or three. So they're coming up, I present to you, Mr. and Mrs. And of course, we know who this is. Who is this beloved? Well, it's, it's, the, it's the shepherd and the country girl from chapter one in each other's arms, they began as two single people at work looking across from each other. She was in the vineyard, he was tending sheep. Hearts and minds enduring the beginning of love and of romance. And if you haven't heard the first two talks in Song of Songs, please do, that'll fill in some of the blanks. So I do encourage you to listen to them because they build upon each other each week in this book. But right now, they're walking into the rest of their life together as one. They're married now. And their marriage is the beginning, not the end. You see, in God's vision, marriage is not the place where intimacy goes to die. 
Marriage is not the place where love goes to die. It's not the end. It's the beginning. Where their relationship and love can burn long and bright. I do wonder, as God's people here, is that how we view marriage as a whole? It's the beginning of our relationship with one another, not the end, you see. Let love's fire burn and live long in our marriages. Not only has our couple come a long way since chapter 1, but the rest of chapter 8 also takes us back to many themes we've seen in chapter 1 and 2, but in a new way. The rest of verse 5 says, Under the apple tree I roused you, there your mother conceived you, there she who was in labour gave birth to you. As we began the song, our woman found rest, relief and delight under an apple tree in a garden. That is, her love was like the fruit tree in summer, refreshing and sweet, as she described the beginning of their relationship. This time, the apple tree is described not as the beginning, but the future of their relationship. It refers to children and family. I don't know how you feel about living near your in-laws and how close you would like to. Some people draw a circle on a map and say, never inside that circle will we live in that area. But that's not the case here. They're quite happy to live close proximity with the family. And it does sound weird to return to the place where the man was birthed, but in the, in the days when the song was written, it mattered to be as close to your family as possible. The family line, the family unit mattered more than it does today. Three things that aren't always a priority for us for lots of reasons. I'm not saying we need to value those things in the days of Song of Solomon, but the point here is what started as a steamy hot romance is also giving thought to raising the next generation. The joy of intimacy, as we've seen in the song, brings about the joy of new life into the world. That's the point. You see, the intent, God's intent behind sexuality is joy on a number of levels. Yes, the desire and attraction and the body of the other person, absolutely, we've seen that. But, it's also the joy about bringing new life in the world. Again, in Genesis, Adam and Eve were to fill the earth, not just enjoy the act of that. And they did both. However, we should remember at this point, as we've said the last few weeks, Song of Songs is like the puzzle box. It shows us God's vision of how it can be. And God is aware of the reality that many of us are in. If you look at the puzzle box and you open it up and you put the pieces on the table, the puzzle does not build itself. And some of us may see this vision of what it could be and feel like the puzzle pieces, we're, we're just, it's not just a mess on the table in our life, we're missing pieces as well. Because God knows very deeply the pain of when a woman cannot conceive or the pain of when death is inside of you in the place where life should be or that a husband would never be a daddy or when illness or even choice stop children. So please don't hear Song of Song and think, well, I'm less of a human because children aren't given to me. Or that I'm less of a human because I don't desire intimacy in the way the Song of Song talks about. That is not the intent or the point of the song. Your humanness, the love of God to you, isn't dependent on you having children or being sexually active or even married. This is a vision, and it may not be yours completely, but it is a good vision from God. And if you feel like the puzzle pieces are missing and your, your puzzle of life is, is, is not finished, may you know, as Paul said tenderly to the Corinthian church, 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. Today, this is your God, the Father of all mercy, whose love for you is tender and gentle, where we find safety and comfort, not under an apple tree, but in the shade of the cross. Please know that today. And then tomorrow, in the kindness of God, he may use you to help others. As Paul goes on, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort which we ourselves have been comforted by God. This is the great, strong love of God right here. And this is why the song ends, not pulling us with this vision of how everything should be, but pulling us to the great love, a greater love, I should say, that we can ever imagine. Because their song ends with a love that we can know and experience, regardless of our situation in life. Look at verses 6 and 7. And what's interesting is that this is the first time in the book that our lovers have looked up from each other. A woman is singing, but she uses language we've not heard before. She now talks about love, not her lover. You see, she talks about love, not her lover. And she introduces four new themes to us that we haven't seen. Death, jealousy, fire and water. And if last week we saw that the climax of their love together was chapter 5 verse 1, well here at the end is the high point of just how strong and mighty love can be. And this is the closest definition of love we have in the song in verse 6. It says, Place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm, for love is as strong as death, it's jealousy unyielding as the grave. She begins by talking about love as if it's a seal. A seal was something that was precious and, and belongs to someone else. It showed possession. They were often expensive and valuable. For example, a wedding ring. It's given by one person. I belong to her, she belongs to me. It's a joyful union. It's not dominating, it's not evil. It's a reminder of who we belong to and how wonderful that can be. And she's saying her love for him is like a seal. It's intimate over my heart, but it's also public on your arm. You see? I remember being on a plane with Natasha about six months after we were uh, started dating. And we sat together and we were on one of those Rex flights and they're so loud you can't even hear anything. Um, and we sat next to her and we were holding hands going from Canberra to Sydney and we were talking closely, um, but we were just really raptured about being together. And as we got up to leave, when you get your bags, the lady behind us leant forward and said, Ah, young love, isn't it delightful? Our love at that point was growing close and more intimate, you see, just as the woman is talking about here, on my arm, in my heart. We began to experience what the woman says here. The strength of love is like the strength of death. Again, Song of Songs has given us wonderful images of love that you may not necessarily say to your beloved, you know, that you look like a horse or that our love is like death. But the point is, it's an image of power and being inseparable. Of course, death will separate them one day. Their love cannot overcome the grave. The grave is jealous in that sense for each of us. But the song says love is as strong as death. But you see, it also reminds us that there is a love that is stronger than death, and that's the love of God. His love is the strongest love. It is a jealous love for his people as well. And it sounds odd. 
But exclusive love is jealous love. Again and again in the Old Testament, we read that God does not spread himself out among multiple partners, but he gives himself fully to the believer, exclusively, without limit. And then his people end up walking away to other gods and break the heart of God in that act. You see, God is exclusively theirs, but they don't want to be exclusively his. But in the song, she is his and he is hers. And then she changes from the picture of the cold grip of death to think about something a bit more warm. Fire. Love is like a burning, blazing fire, like a mighty flame. Love is this blazing flame. And that picture is something we can all understand, I'm sure. But you see, God's vision for love in this is that we treat it with care, allowing his good vision to shape us. There is a flame of passion in us as humans that burns for many loves in this world that may not necessarily share God's vision of love and holiness. And that is why it is good here, to, as we sing, end the song, to be lifted to a higher, holier, more perfect love, towards a love that cannot be extinguished by death's cold grip or changed by the feeling of the day or the passion that fades. Because in verse 7, she says, Many waters cannot quench love. 22 years ago, I was blown away by this picture. And I was um, younger, I can't remember how old because I can't do math very well, but 22 years younger I was, and I could not fathom this picture. Maybe you've seen it, maybe you were there, well probably not in this particular moment, but you may have seen it before. And it's a picture of love that Song of Song draws us in that it can't be quenched. This was the Olympic torch going underwater with a flame. And I thought, how can the fire not go out? Yet, in a very clever way that I don't understand here, they, they figured out how to make a fire burn underwater. And I, I could not, it just blew my head away. That with all the pressure of water on top of it, with, with the fact that fire and water don't actually mix because it puts it out, they took the Olympic torch down to the bottom of the Great Barrier Reef. And that is just like the love of God. It will still burn hot, even with billions and billions and billions of kilograms of ocean pushing down upon it. Never to be faded or swept away is the love of God. Is, in fact, the love they have for each other. Except their love is, is like a match compared to God's love. Or a dripping tap compared to the ocean. This is a strong desire between a man and a woman that we have that's powerful, intense, it's God-given. And they sing as they finish of the love of God. And while it takes the rest of the biblical story to unpack that in its fullest extent, we begin to see just how love can be stronger than death, just how love cannot get put out by, the, by water. Because when we meet Jesus, we learn that God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, Jesus' love for his people is jealous and strong and it burns through death in his resurrection, which means his is the eternal love. Oh, Christian today, do you know that? This burning love that God in Christ has for you. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That is a theological truth that all the weight of the ocean cannot put out. Do you know that?
This is a love that should burn in our communities, in our hearts, from God towards each other. And with this great love in the flame, overcoming death, jealous love in mind, the woman gives us one more comparison here. One more comparison that's very relevant to us in Australia at the moment. It's the cost of a house. In verse 8, verse 7, she says, If I were to give all the wealth of one's house, it would be utterly scorned. You know, a house is pretty much the most expensive thing you will ever own. And should you have one, should you have sold it six months ago, the height of when everything went up, and then you sold everything else you own, and then you stand on the corner of the street with only your phone and your clothes, and you look at your bank account with everything in it that you got, and you said, I can now buy love, and you said to the person walking by you, guess what, I've sold my house and my stuff, I'm just me, I have enough now to buy love, they would look at you and say, you're nuts. You'd be laughed at. You can't buy the love that they have. You can't buy this sort of love. Give it the most expensive thing you own. It will not work. The, the kind of love these two have is priceless. And if only someone would have told Solomon that, things would have probably gone a lot better. Look in verse 11 and 12. Solomon comes into the song now. He had a vineyard in Balhannon. This is like an ancient Barossa Valley. And Solomon probably actually owned lots and lots and lots of vineyards here. And he let his vineyards out to tenants, and each was to bring forth its fruit, a thousand shekels of silver. And then she says, but my own vineyard is mine to give. So a thousand shekels are for you, Solomon. You have that. And two hundred are for those who tend its fruit. Solomon tries to buy love. A woman and Solomon we've been told already, own vineyards. She began working in a vineyard. Solomon, the song ends with Solomon's vineyard. Except there's probably more, probably more than a picture of viticulture going on here as he speaks. Because we've seen over and over again that the garden language means this is most likely talking about a woman's body. Solomon, you have a thousand women, right? 700 wives, 300 mistresses. And others around, they have multiple partners too, 200 in fact for some of you. But Solomon, I have one vineyard and I told you in chapter 5 that I gave that key to my vineyard to one person. And Solomon, you can't buy the sort of love that I have. The desire that I have for this shepherd, you can't buy it. I'm going to give myself to the one I marry and that's only his. These verses also help us make sense of verses 8 to 10, when it talks about her brothers. Again, they bring us back to the start of the song, when her brothers, when she said, I had to work in the vineyard. But the song has gone on. Things have changed. As we read 8 to 10, her, her brothers are not being overbearing. That's not the, the point here. The point is they're looking out for each other in a world that doesn't share God's vision for intimacy and desire. They want to make sure she doesn't awaken love until the right time. Singles are honoured under God in a way that isn't necessarily in other places. And for a woman, they want to protect her from harmful relationships, from those interested in only one thing. But she's grown up and married now. She doesn't need to keep the garden of her body locked up and protected from the foxes that might spoil it, as chapter 2 says. It says she's become a delight to her husband and her family no longer need to look after her that way. I think this is a great moment when the wisdom of the song comes out. God's vision is both for protection and pleasure. 
And of course, it's confronting and it's strange to hear a way of doing relationships that's very different to our culture, as Song of Song has shown us. But we must ask, so why does it not surprise us that God sees things a little differently? And why should we be surprised if our own ideas and identity bump up against God's at times? I mean, if you're confronted with this burning, holy love from a good, loving, wise God, it's probably going to make you feel a bit uneasy, and that's okay. But we're not alone as we think through this. Wrestle with who God is and what he says. I'm cheering you on as you consider this, as you hold up God's vision and seek to live by it by God's grace. And at this point, our song draws to a close with this delightful, playful comment that the husband and wife now say to each other in 13 to 14. You who dwell in the gardens with friends in attendance, this is the wedding party now, they're looking around, they're seeing each other, let me hear your voice. And she says, come away, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or like a young stag on the spice-laden mountain. And again, if we think back to the start of the song, our lovers looked at each other searching for each other, wanting, desiring. And it ends in the same way. But things are different. She says in verse uh, verse one, chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 4, hurry, kiss me. But here, with love awoken, she says, hurry, make love to me. Instead of appealing to gazelles and does in the first few chapters to wait for love and not awaken it, she now says, hey, I'm comparing you to those animals and how our love is a feast for one another, you see? It's interesting, for those that are not yet married, and those that even are married, you may have thought this, some people may say, I need experience in the bedroom. I don't want to be lousy. And what the wisdom of Song of Songs has taught us is that that's a false assumption. That experience isn't actually necessary for great intimacy. The Song has told us desires can be like foxes that spoil a vineyard. In Australia, we'd say it's like rabbits or camels running through the paddocks, destroying the crop. Or it can be a fire that breaks out in the wrong place, like in the heat of summer in the dry condition. Love can be like that. Desire can be like that. But keeping them under God, with his vision, allows love to grow at the right time and intimacy grows at that same rate. Because the point is that experience isn't necessary to sing the song. God's vision for intimacy and desire is all you need. And at that point, as the song ends, we leave our lovers in an eternal, forever intimacy desire cycle. It just goes on. The song will continue until we read it today and unpack it. Their love is continuing in that sense. Because then it says in the last verse, come away with me, my love. Come away with me. But you know, that's just not how the song of song ends. This is how the biblical story ends too. In Revelation 22:17, the last chapter of the Bible, we read the spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who hears, come. Let the one who is thirsty, come. And let the one who wishes take the free gift of the waters of life. Yes, the song is a song about human love and desire in the context of, of marriage, in this relationship before being married. But given that it's a song in the Bible... We're reminded too the ultimate reference point for love is not human, but it's divine. That God, who is himself love, existing as the Trinity for all eternity, is the author of love. 
Which means when we hear of a love as strong, strong as death, it is only when Jesus died and rose, killing death by his great love, that we have clarity on the power and the strong divine love that God has. We see to how Jesus is jealous for our affections and love, and that to enjoy him is a reminder that no earthly love is as powerful, safe, good as the love of God. And while we saw that money cannot buy love, we're reminded that the blood of Jesus and the body of Jesus is a precious treasure worth more than gold because his blood rescues us from death and brings us to God. It is Jesus who sets his seal of love by his spirit upon you, reminding you that you belong to him and that he loves you to bits. It's his love that reminds you you are lovely and valuable and precious. It's because his love makes you that. We're reminded that love in relationships is a precious gift from God meant to point us something greater to God himself. And just as God's love story began in a garden with Adam and Eve, the Bible gives us this vision of a happy marriage under a loving God where Jesus calls himself to us forever and ever. This is the future that is ours in Christ. Regardless of if you are married or not, Jesus offers us the waters of life to find that in him. And should some of us spend our entire life never awakening love? Should love be elusive from one after the other, the promise for you, for us, is that love can be awoken one day because Revelation 19 says, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. These are the true words of God. You see, every Christian is promised to God, engaged to that future, and awaits its fulfilment. Jesus has gone to prepare everything for you, making it ready. And that is your hope. And so as we wrap up Song of Songs, Rebecca McLaughlin says God's vision is actually an inconvenient truth at times. However, she goes on to say, it might be inconvenient, but it's a greater truth than my small mind can fathom, a deeper desire than my weak heart can muster, and a closer relationship than the best human marriage can attain. And so I'm cheering you on as you pursue God's vision, which the Song of Song encourages us to sing. Let's pray. Our great God, you love us to bits. So much so that you showed that from Genesis 3 when you promised that someone would come to rescue us, bring us back to you in your presence. And we see that being fulfilled slowly over time, but it's perfectly clear in Jesus, the word of life. And so, Father, may we, may we drink deeply from your grace and mercy, heal our broken hearts, give strength to our weak hearts. May those of us who are in wonderful relationships be reminded that the best we have is simply a glimpse of what is going to come with you and encourage all of us with that vision of love as seen perfectly in Jesus. Amen.